You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 128, The Commodore 128. Hello and welcome to episode 128 of You Don't Know Flack. Today's show is going to be about the Commodore 128. It's also going to be a little bit different style of show than what you guys are used to and what I've been doing. The reason for that is that I am sitting in a hotel room somewhere in the eastern part of the United States and I am located in between a freeway and an airport. So if you're lucky enough, you'll get to hear the uh, morons that have been drag racing up and down in front of the hotel all evening or possibly an airplane or both or maybe the people will the drag racers will race an airplane who knows uh so it's not the best environment to record in but uh as you guys know i missed my self-imposed sunday deadline for uh Ever since the beginning of the year, I've been recording uh, an episode every Sunday. And uh, this past weekend, I didn't make it. Um, I am working on a project at work that has me working uh, at least 60 hours a week, sometimes more. Uh, So basically 12-hour days. So um, that same project this week has put me on travel and so I am driving across the country on my way to Washington DC and uh, since I basically haven't seen my kids except for little tiny windows here and there uh, we decided to go camping over the weekend not really camping but um, to get a cabin my wife's sister rented a cabin and then uh, wasn't able to use it so uh, she turned it over to us, and we went camping. I call it camping. Um, the cabin turned out to be about... I'm a bad estimator at stuff like this. But I would say between 200 and 300 square foot. <laughs> when you open the front door to the cabin, uh, right there was the... You opened it into the, the bedroom. So when you opened the front door, you were looking at uh, the bed. And then there was a small kitchenette slash dining room, uh, which is where my kids slept on the floor. My kids brought sleeping bags. And uh, then there was also a a bathroom. It's funny that um, when it comes to uh, modern architecture, I don't understand it, and I'm completely baffled by how skyscrapers are built, how people are able to, you know, build buildings that are hundreds of stories tall. Uh, It just doesn't seem possible to me. But uh, this cabin was exactly the opposite of that. I could tell exactly how it was constructed. (laughs) There was no part of the cabin that was a mystery. 
Uh, I could see where the nails were, where the wood was, um, how everything was put together. So not uh, one of man's marvels, let's just say that. So uh, we also went um, metal detecting. There's a new reality show, I don't know what it's called, but uh, the new flurry of reality shows. And there's one with uh, these two morons. And uh, they go metal detecting. And they get excited every time they find something. Uh, we were watching one the other day. And they had found... Um, I think they were Civil War bullets. Something like that. And, and you know, they, they freak out every time they find something. Uh, you know, and they yell at the other guy. And they come running. Oh, look at this. And then at the bottom of the screen it says, you know, like Civil War bullet retail value five dollars or something like that you know so uh, they get pretty excited over five dollars so uh my wife um who's very outdoorsy and, and loves doing all things outdoors recently bought a metal detector so after um sleeping in a 200 square foot cabin on a mattress about as thick as a slice of uh, cheese we uh Went metal detecting. And by the way, the next morning it was about um, uh, 45 degrees. And I was wearing a t-shirt. Uh, with, And I brought a hoodie. So I had a hoodie on and a pair of shorts. Carrington, if you're listening out there, that's in Fahrenheit. So I don't know what that would be in Celsius. I think negative 80 something. I'm not too good. Not too good at the um, conversion. But, um, so yeah, instead of recording this podcast on Sunday morning, like I had planned, um, I was freezing my butt off and, um, watching my wife and children metal detect. And they have a whole system where my wife metal detects, uh, she has the metal detector and waves it back and forth and it beeps. And then the kids, um, each have these little shovels. And so they, they also have a, a spaghetti strainer. So they, they dig every time the, the thing beeps, they take turns, they dig up whatever it is. Um, and then if they don't find it immediately, they put the dirt in the, um, spaghetti strainer and they shake it around until they find, uh, whatever the metal is in there. So everything they found, they put in a plastic bowl. And then my, my daughter who's seven, um, tallied all their uh, treasure. She calls it her treasure. So her treasure consisted of 28 rusty nails, um, a couple of beer cans, I posted some pictures uh, Sunday afternoon on the website. If you want to see pictures of the treasure, they're at robohair.com. Um, my daughter also found a, the, uh, hey, there's one of the morons, the drag racing uh, guys that keep going by. Sorry. Uh, my daughter found a st- elastic strap from someone's underwear um, that was not new. So it had probably washed up uh, from the water. We were on the, the shore of a lake. Um and then I don't know why children do this, but her, I mean, my immediate reaction, if I saw a piece of someone else's underwear laying in nature would be to not, uh, touch that. But her reaction was the opposite. Her reaction was to pick up this strap that belonged to someone else's underwear at some point in history and, and wave it around and, and, uh, run around with it. So... And it wasn't even metal, so I don't even know <laughs> how she found it. But, um, yeah, so they found uh, lots of nails. Um, pretty much anything that you would imagine getting tetanus from is what they found. So they found this giant bowl 
of basically harmful items. So um, that's why the podcast did not get recorded Sunday morning. And then um, had some errands to run Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening before he hit the road uh, early Monday morning. It's Monday night right now. Um, while I was driving today, I uh, jotted down just some, some things that are going on right now. Uh, so I thought I'd talk about those as, as new news items. I don't really have um, all my email here, all my notes, everything. So everything that I was going to put in episode uh, 128, except for the topic, of course, which is the Commodore 128, which kind of has to be um, the topic of episode 128, right? Um, when uh, episode when I knew uh, episode 128 was coming up, Rob Sherman said, oh, well, it's going to be about the uh, Commodore 128, right? And I was like, oh, of course. And then I thought, I, I never had a, a 128. So, But anyway, I put together a little bit of a show. But um, before we get to that, let's see, what did I have on my list here to talk about? Well, first of all, there's work, um, which I don't talk about. <laughs> so it seems like a silly thing to put on the list. But um, lots of hours at work right now. I'm on a project that will last um, through May, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, lots of, uh, overtime and comp time being earned right now. What can you do, right? Works work. Um, traincore.com. Traincore is a domain that I have owned, um, since I believe 2007. My wife and I, uh, were at one point disenchanted with our jobs and we went to a uh, local votech and attended a class on becoming entrepreneurs and we came up with a business plan and that business plan would be to run a training business where we would provide computer training to people i guess <laughs> Uh, she and I kind of had different ideas. Obviously, I wanted to do training that was fun. I wanted to do uh, security trading, like security audits, pen testing, things like that. Um, um, hold on here. See, this is one of the things. That I don't know how much editing this may end up in the final show, but uh, my computer, I'm doing this from a, uh, not my main, the normal computer that I normally record from, and uh, apparently it's, program to go to sleep every five minutes so we'll make a change here and see how that works but anyway we uh we attended this class on um entrepreneurship and we came up with this idea of uh doing training and my wife's idea was uh she wanted to do corporate style training where we would hire trainers to come in and we would train local businesses on high-end products and the type of training that people pay thousands of dollars for. And so we would be this middleman um, kind of business. So we would, we would um, one of the, at the time, we were doing a lot of work with uh, Lotus Notes. So the idea was we would hire Lotus Notes trainers, and then we would put on these Lotus Notes training seminars and, you know, charge thousands of dollars per person, and then we would have to pay Lotus so much for their trainer. And, and you know, that was her idea. My idea was more simple. I wanted to teach um, you know, old old ladies had to do eBay, and um, people had to do security audits um, and basic 
Uh, I wanted to do a WordPress uh, class, things like that. Things that um, at the time seemed like a good idea. Now, many of those things are offered uh, for free, either online or through community education. So, um, But uh, part of this class was to come up with a name. And so we came up with the name Train Corps which stood for Training Corporation, and we designed a logo, and um, I registered a domain, and we set up a domain, and we had all these things out there on this website, you know? And long story short, we've never done anything with it. So every year that it goes by, I get these emails that say, um, you know, do you want to renew this domain? And and I always click yes, and I say, you know, well, one more year. I'll give it one one more year, um and if I don't do anything with it this year, then I'm not going to renew it. And so, um, you know, so I registered it, I think, in 2007. And uh, so I first had those thoughts in 2008. And then there was 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, and now it's 2013. And uh, so last year I said, um, you know, that's it. I'm not, it's five years. We've never uh, lifted a finger um, you know, to do any of this stuff. And, uh, it's obviously, it's not going to take off. And so that's the end of it. And unfortunately I had auto renew set on the account. So, uh, just when I had basically put it, I think I even wrote a blog post about how that's it. That's we're done. I'm, I'm not doing it in the business. And, um, then it auto renewed. So I've had it for one more year. And one, one thing, the only thing that I've ever really used it for is I registered a bunch of stuff using, I'd set up email, an email account at traincore.com. And since nobody knew about the domain, I only used it to sign up for things. Uh, I, you know, I'd used it on things that I didn't care about getting spam, but I had some things registered to that. So, uh, last year I temporarily turned it off and I noticed that a few things started getting rejected. So I had to turn it back on and track down isn't that a pain, changing email addresses? Um, but I had to track down some things that were registered to uh, robohara at traincore.com. But anyway, um, so the domain expired yesterday, and I let it go. I went and um, deleted the DNS entry, and so Traincore is gone. So that is um, so this podcast is about my dreams going to the garbage disposal. <laughs> As I sit here feeling sorry for myself in a hotel room in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so yeah, no more train core. Speaking of domain names, um, about six months ago, I got this wild hair to start a game review site, and it was going to be called Sprite Castle. And it was kind of a play on um, White Castle. So I, I made a logo that looked like White Castle, but it says Sprite Castle. And I went and registered SpriteCastle.com. And I set up a WordPress site. And I um, put a couple of reviews there, maybe just like one or two articles, and there it sits. And I've done this before. Um, I have um, uh, kind of a, a side thing, but I have an infatuation with shelves and shelving units. I love people's displays, how they display, um, you know, their video games, their home computers, their collections, whatever they collect, you know, what kind of shelves do they put it in? I've always had shelves, um, in my bedroom. If I had my way, um, my house would probably just be covered in shelves everywhere, you know? Um, but, uh, 
So I set up a website a couple of years ago called Love Thy Shelf. Um, and it's a WordPress site. And I my my idea was that I would reach out to everybody I knew, all these collectors, everybody, and I would say, hey, take pictures of your stuff, show you know, and we'll display your shelves. And I was going to collect, like, different plans on how to build shelves and do things like that. And um, I would also go out and search the web. And when there were, you know, like people, I'd find articles on building shelves or, you know, shelves that were on sale and things like that. And uh, so I did that for about six months and it got basically no readers. It had no followers. And um, so it's just kind of been sitting out there dormant. It's just one of those projects that you, you have this great idea. That's kind of one, one problem, I guess, with the internet. Now we have such a, a low entry level for everything, you know, I mean, uh, I've got my own web server. So if I want to set up a website, you know, you go register a domain name, it's less than 10 bucks. I go set up a name a couple hours later, I've got a WordPress, you know, install done, a custom WordPress theme, do a little tweaking here and there, boom, ready to go. I mean, you could launch an entire website in two hours. And two hours is not enough time to think about whether that was a good idea or not. <laughs> so, um, you know, maybe back when it took a couple of weeks to launch a website, maybe that was a, a better idea, you know. Um, so I really need to focus, spend some time paring down these projects, you know, love thy shelf. It was a, a good idea and I enjoyed doing it, but, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, do I want to be known as, uh, the shelf guy? And really I don't, you know, um, I have review-o-matic, which is review-o-matic.com, uh, which was a, you know, a place where I was putting all my reviews and it was game, not, not just game reviews, but music and movie and book reviews and, and everything, uh, you know, things that I had written for other sites. I also put out there review manic and, um, but it's like, how much time do you, you know, I kind of came to a decision a while back. I don't know. I go back and forth. It, it's, um, running a review site. It's interesting, you know, and I like writing things, but, uh, and I like reviewing things. I think that's the um, journalism major in me, you know. But on the same token, it's like how much time and energy and effort do you want to put into reviewing other people's work when I could be writing books or articles um, or making podcasts and creating my own uh, things, you know. So... It almost seems like doing reviews, um, unless it's something, you know, like a target audience or something, but, uh, you know, it's just, it just seems like energy that's wasted that could be gone into or put into creating things rather than talking about other people's creations. So, I don't know. I don't, um, I don't feel that way about the podcast, per se, um, but when it comes to just a website solely about, you know, reviewing music or whatever, I think there's more fun to be had in creating music than there is about talking about other people's music. Speaking of music, that's a good segue that just kind of happened. Um, I recently bought uh, a Newmark Mix... God dang it, what is that thing called? Mixtrack Pro 2. A Newmark Mixtrack Pro 2, which is a set of digital 
DJ turntables. Um, it's not the full size platters. They don't. They're not as big as normal LP records. They're smaller type platters. Um, and the difference between the regular version and the Pro is the Pro has a built-in sound card on board. So it has RCA jacks built in. You can run it right out to a PA system. You don't have to run through a computer. Why would I, a middle-aged... Am I middle-aged? Jesus. I'm 39. I'm going to be uh, 40 at the end of this summer. Why would a middle-aged man with more gray hair than black hair... uh, who does professional computer work by a set of digital turntables. And man, I wish I had the answer to that question. (laughs) I mean, it's really a ridiculous purchase. Um, I have always, uh, I I mean, I love all kinds of music. I'm going to make all kinds of noise here too, as I shift in this rather uncomfortable hotel chair. Um, I uh, grew up listening to the music my parents listened to initially, you know, um, and my dad listened to, I I would say, I would call it rock. I mean, he listened to Queen, uh, Blondie, Tommy the Who was one of the first albums I remember listening to, so um, great kid material there. Uh, But... uh, so he he had that influence, and then my mom was more like the um, old school country, like the Patsy Cline, the um, uh, Don Williams. I remember she had you know she had some uh, rock stuff too, and and so I grew up listening to everything. Uh, I had a some of the first albums I remember having. I had a Beach Boys like the Beach Boys Greatest Hits from KTEL. Um, I had a lot of those compilations of popular songs like Hit Explosion, stuff like that. Uh, I had Rick Springfield and, and some early Bruce Springsteen. So I, I just listened to everything um, when I was a kid. And so I grew up listening to um, lots of uh, rock and roll, heavy metal, hard rock, whatever you want to call it, um, but also, I got into rap very early on, and I've always loved uh, old school rap. Now, I I got into rap. Um, boy, we are going way off topic here, aren't we? We're twenty minutes into this stupid thing. Um, but yeah, I um. I mean, like early um, Run DMC, um, I was a, a breakdance kid. I was in a breakdancing. So Breakin' and Beat Street and all those um, uh, soundtracks. Um, I had lots of uh, breakdancing type albums. Uh, I was into the Fat Boys, all that kind of stuff, you know. So I, I kind of grew up uh, on that stuff. Um, Beastie Boys were huge. Um, and I was into rap for a long time. I made it through, I guess, the first wave uh, of gangster rap. If you, um, you know, the NWA, Eazy E, Ice T, original gangster, that stuff. Um, and then I kind of lost interest in it. You know, I would say some of the last ones I was really into were like Cypress Hill. Um, you know, the early 90s, mid 90s. Um, I mean, there's a lot of newer stuff. I just don't know. 
Um, but anyway, I, I've always enjoyed that style of music, and I've always enjoyed um, making music, even though I'm, I'm pretty terrible at it. So who knows? Maybe the next You Don't Know Flack uh, theme song will be some sort of a silly remix I make with these uh, turntables. So I'm probably, I don't know, it's not really um, You Don't Know Flack topic per se. It's not really retro um, but, uh, eh, there'll probably be some things on the, on the website about, uh, the turntables. So, uh, the only other thing I had on my list was the death of Google reader. And I'm so bummed about that. And I, I talked about that on my blog this week. So, um, if you're a, a fan of RSS feeds, which I am, uh, Google reader, I just loved it. And I loved the fact that, um, since it was, uh, web-based or cloud-based, cloud-based, if you will, um, that it synced no matter what machine I was on. So if I was on my work machine, my home machine, my iPad, my phone, whatever, you know, I could read a few articles. And then later on, if I were on a different machine, it would already know because I was logged into Gmail, um, you know, what I had read. So I'm looking for an alternative that I could host myself which is exactly what I did when they um, turned off their Google bookmarks. I decided to host that myself, and I've been completely happy with that ever since. You know, So it's not a solution for everybody. And I think there are several people right now vying. I know Feedly uh, has said that they gained half a million viewers uh, or half a million new users over the weekend after Google Reader announced that they were closing down and, and uh, uh, this old reader which is another alternative to Google Reader, gained 100,000. So um, for Google to proclaim that RSS is dead is just a weird move to me. I mean, I don't think that they really think that. I think what Google thinks is that uh, they can't glean enough information out of us from RSS. That's my theory anyway. But, um, uh, I mean, because that's why Google exists, right? Um, you know, Google's old motto was... Uh, uh, you know, that they weren't evil, but I don't know. I'm starting to question that. I don't have my sound effects with me. I don't have, um, I'll try to plug in the, uh, opening and closing music. Uh, but, um, I've rambled on long enough on this one. This is another long intro. So, um, I always need your feedback. If the intros are too long, too short, um, off topic, on topic, you know, I need to hear from you guys. So, um, you can always send me feedback at robohara at robohara.com or podcast at robohara.com. Either one, don't send it to TrainCore because TrainCore is gone. Um, you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Commodork. Or um, there's the uh, You Don't Know Flack Facebook page. So any anyway, um, there's the voicemail box number two, but I don't have the number here in front of me. And um, I, I did have a call this week, but it's going to have to... Wait until next week's episode when I can access it. So, anyway, I've uh, rambled on long enough, and I'm pulling open the few notes that I have here on the Commodore 128. I should sing the song. Do, 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 do. All right. So, the Commodore 128. Well, Here's what I know about the Commodore 128. The uh, Commodore 64, which we all know now is the best-selling home computer of all time, came out in 1982. Um, and the Commodore 64 was great 
at what it did. I mean, it had amazing graphic capabilities. It was the best graphical 8-bit computer, I think. Um, it had the best sound of all the 8-bit machines. I mean, the SID chip, people still mess around with SID chips today, you know. Um, but uh, I think one thing that, that um, maybe kept it from being completely mainstream in the business world is it kind of looked like a toy. You know, it didn't look like other home computers at the time. It didn't look like, um, you know, as we started seeing uh, other machines, like, uh, I mean, if you look at it compared to the Apple II and, and um, you know, other machines that started having this kind of sleek look, this long and slender look, and the Commodore 64, um, the original, which has been dubbed the uh, bread bin, or the bread box, you know, I mean, it's this beige uh, box, you know, kind of a light brown with, with um, these dark brown keys. And, and um, uh, you know, it was limited to 40 columns, which made it more difficult to do um, word processing and a lot of serious business applications on. It also didn't have a number pad on the side, which um, a lot of heavy-duty... Um, uh, data entry people missed. There were actually um, number pad add-ons that you could get. I've seen those. Um, but, uh, so anyway, you know, by 1985, 84, 85, uh, the Commodore 64 started to show its age just a little bit. Um, and, uh, so in 1984, Commodore starts looking for some new replacements, some uh, machines that are going to get Commodore's foot into the business world because now, you know, uh, we have the IBM, the PC Junior, um, the XT uh, is coming or has arrived and, um, you know, we need, Commodore needs to get its foot in the business world as well. And so in 1984, Commodore released uh, two or three new computers. In the U.S., there was the Commodore Plus 4 and the Commodore 16. Now, there's also the 116, which I guess is UK only, and I, I've never even seen a 116 in person. So, um, But the Plus 4 had 64K of RAM, uh, like the Commodore, and actually it had a lot more available uh, or usable RAM. I believe it had um, almost 60 of that RAM, uh, 60K of that RAM uh, was usable. Uh, it also had built-in applications um it had kind of like if you think about like um microsoft works or um uh, the lotus packages you know it had a uh, database or you know it had a spreadsheet it had a word processor so it had all these built-in apps um productivity apps but the problem with the commodore plus four well there were, there were several problems but the biggest problem uh is that it was the software, uh, it didn't have a, a SID chip. It was incompatible with the SID. Um, and it didn't have the ability to uh, do sprites, which is what most Commodore 64 games use. So software-wise, it was completely incompatible with the Commodore 64, which had a huge uh, and still growing at that time software library. So it wasn't backwards compatible at all. Um, now... It's over time, you know, the general consensus consensus of 
backwards compatibility has gone back and forth. I mean, in the early days, nobody thought about backwards compatibility. And then they, uh, you know, companies like console uh, companies, if you think about them, uh, you know, sold add-ons. Like there's the add-on for the 5200 that allows you to play Atari 2600 games. Um, The add-on for the uh, Coleco... um, you know, so uh, the Apple II line was backwards compatible, but Commodore had kind of made this leap where they had a new line of computers. There was also the Commodore 16, which when I saw the Commodore 16, I I mean, I just saw a picture of it uh, in a magazine, and it's the same uh, mold as the 64, but it's like really, really dark, uh, almost black plastic. It's a really dark gray with light gray keys. And it just looks badass. I mean, I wanted one of those so bad, you know. And then when the reviews came out, um, it only had 16K of RAM. Um, and I guess, like, 12K was was usable. And it wasn't really designed uh, to be a successor to the 64. It was more of a replacement for the VIC-20. Um, its uh, marketplace was to actually compete with the TI-99, at the time, which is kind of weird if you think about it. I mean, I understand, um, you know, and, and part of this had to do with Jack Trammell wanting to put uh, TI out of business at that time. It was more of a, a personal vengeance, really, than a, a business decision. But, um, you know, I mean, the Commodore 16, when you look at it, it's just kind of a weird... It's like, um, you know, if you're, I don't know, uh, Ford or Chevy, you know, some big car company, and you're like, we want to take out you know, the Yugo market. Well, leave the, no, who wants the Yugo market? Who wants the, you know, $5,000 new car market? Nobody wants that. So, um, I mean, Yugo <laughs> didn't even want it apparently. So, um, you know, I mean, why they wanted to, to go after this sub hundred dollar computer market, uh, it's kind of weird, but so they put out the Commodore 16, which the shape, like I said, is exactly like the Commodore 64. So people assumed uh, that it would be compatible, but it also wasn't compatible. Um, and to boot, um, the Commodore Plus 4 didn't use um, the Atari-style joysticks anymore. Uh, they changed the, the way that the to a different joystick port, and I don't think you could use serial um, printers. You had to, like, get a, a adapter to use a Commodore printer or you had to buy a different kind of printer. And then the Commodore 16, you could use disk drives and printers, but there was no user port. So you couldn't use modems. It was just a whole weird, you know, thing. It's like they were kind of, didn't really know what to do next after the success of the 64. Um, and so they went back and, um, you know, to their developers, and they started, you know, what people wanted was a Commodore, a new Commodore 64, but a bigger and better Commodore 64. That's what people wanted, you know, and so the uh, Commodore went back to the drawing board, and uh, they started working on the Commodore 128, which was essentially um, supposed to be, you know, the, the successor to the Commodore 64, but with more RAM uh, and a faster processor. So, uh, if you look at the Commodore 128, first of all, uh, from a design standpoint, it's very, 
sleek compared to the Commodore 64. It's very thin. Um, the Commodore 64, anybody that's used a 64 for more than about eight minutes knows how hot those uh, power supplies or bricks, as we used to call them, can get. You know, And I think everybody's gone through burning up one of those bricks. Um, and if you've ever tried to disassemble one, and they're basically a, an entire cube of epoxy, <laughs> like cemented, closed, and shut. Um, you know, so you, if the fuse goes out and burns out on there, you can't replace it. It's just a, a strange design. You know, everybody that that I knew um, that ran a BBS or or had their sixty four on for a long period of time had a fan sitting right on top of their power supply. I had fans on my drives and a fan on the power supply. So, um, but the, the 128 had a, uh, newly redesigned power supply. So they had improved that. They also, um, had originally basically put two different processors in the 128. One would be a new processor for the Commodore 128 and its new version of basic and all of its new, uh, abilities, you know, the, um, commands to, to use all this new hardware that would be put in there. And then there was another processor put in there for CPM, which was a alternate operating system at the time. CPM got pushed out uh, eventually by DOS. But um, uh, so you kind of had this, this um, two headed approach, but uh, Jack Trammell knew uh, why these other machines had failed, why the Commodore plus four had failed, why, the Commodore 16 had failed, and it was because they weren't compatible with this uh, already large and continually growing Commodore 64 library. And so uh, I believe, from what I've read, it was Tremel that demanded that the 128 also be completely compatible with the Commodore 64. And so if you've ever uh, turned on a 128, I, you can hold down, I think it's the Commodore key, and you turn on and it comes up in uh, Commodore 64 mode. Or if you had a 64 uh, cartridge like fast load or something, it would come up in um, 64 mode. So you were really getting three computers in one. Uh, so you also, with the Commodore 128, we also saw the release. Uh, there was a 1570 drive. I don't know anybody that ever owned one. Uh, but right after that was the 1571 which was um, another design improvement on the old 1541, which was the Commodore 64 disk drive that most people are familiar with, the big, giant, beige size of a shoebox disk drive that we all love. Um, the 1571 was uh, double-sided, double density, so it could actually read both sides of a floppy at the same time as opposed to the single-sided 1541. It also had a way to um, detect where track zero was, which the 1541 didn't. So every time that the 1541, uh, the way that it found track zero was by banging the head of the drive, which sounds like this. If I could find that sound effect, I'll stick it in there. But um, if not, that's what it sounds like. But um, uh, that had a uh, side effect of also knocking drives out of alignment. And the 1571 didn't have that problem. So on my Commodore 64 setup at home, which I am about 700 miles away from right now, uh, 
I have two 1571s hooked up because they don't go out of alignment as easily. They're much uh, more reliable. They're quieter. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm a fan of the 1571 drive. You could hook them up uh, and use them on a regular 64 in a single side mode. Um, but, yeah, the 1571 drives, uh, that was another nice thing. So I knew two people at the time that had Commodore 128s, and one is my wife, Susan. And her dad had a Commodore 128, and he used... Uh, they did a lot of stuff in 64 mode. I've asked her about a lot of the games and programs and things that they did. And um, uh, most of the things that she's told me about were, you know, Commodore 64 things. There weren't very many. I think a Wikipedia has a list of about 20 um, dedicated games that ran in 128 mode. And a lot of those were text adventures that took advantage of the 128's 80-column mode. But... Uh, so where you really gained your advantage was in uh, productivity applications, geos, um, 80 column word processors, things like that. Um, Susan's dad did uh, some genealogy work. It was some program that was on the 128. So th there was, um, to harness the power, you know, um, was mostly funnel towards productivity packages and not really um, games. I think there's a, I've read that there's a 128 version of the last V8, but I don't really know what the difference between that and the 64 version is. I'll have to look that up. But um, but yeah, so it's funny too that my wife, um, who was not a computer person really, I mean her dad um, was a you know, computer hobbyist, I guess I'd say, but um, she, I mean, just as, as somebody who had a computer, you know, she told me one of her memories of the 128 was that she would get magazines, you know, computer magazines, and type in programs. And she relayed a story to me about typing in a program about getting a, and basically it generated a sprite of a race car, and you could drive it around with the arrow keys. And she just thought that was amazing, you know, that you could put something in the computer and then control it with these keys, you know. So that was a common, uh, I mean, you hear that from a lot of people that, got hooked on computers back in the day is um, that first time that you type something in. I mean, you're typing in what looks like gibberish almost. Uh, and then, you know, once you work out all the bugs and you typed run and you saw the computer, you know, translate that into something that, that actually did something that you could control or that it would give you feedback or, or um, you know, do some sort of results. And so that and that's an experience that a lot of us shared and hooked a lot of us on um uh, computers back then, and a lot of us stayed with it, you know. But um, what, the other one of her big memories was Sam, which was the um, speech synthesizer for the Commodore 64. If I can find Sam on YouTube, the demo, I'll um, run that here. But Sam was a basic program, and once you loaded it in, you could uh, use it. You could type in text. There was um, actually... Once you loaded it in, you could actually have, uh, like, use uh, basic commands to make Sam say different things. And you could tweak, uh, you'll hear in the demo, you could tweak Sam to say different things, uh, use different voices. Hello, everyone. It sure is nice to be here today. I am Sam, the brand new voice for the Commodore 64 computer. I am the most versatile 
understandable speech synthesizer on the market. And I am the lowest price of them all. But what can you do with me? Why you can put me into your own programs. How would you like your business software to say, please enter this week's purchases? Or imagine an adventure game that does this. The elf was captured by the giant. He began to cry and he said, Oh no, please don't hurt me, Mr. Giant. But the giant was very mean and he only said, Ho, ho, ho. There is no limit to the possible applications of speech in your programs. Also, I am very easy to use. Anyone can add speech to a basic program. I can even talk very quickly. Listen to this one. Peter Piper picked a pick of pickled peppers. How many picks of pickled peppers did Peter Piper pick? Wowee! That was a toughie. Anyway, you get the idea. Sam is the most exciting new product of this year. So, how about it? Won't you please take me home? Sam is here to stay. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my little talk. You know, talk about uh, soulmates. When, um, and I mentioned this on a previous podcast, when my wife and I, I on the Nintendo podcast, in fact, when, when we moved in together and she was unpacking, the three things that she unpacked, the first three things were her Nintendo her dad's Commodore 128 and a framed Three Stooges uh, poster, and I was like, well, <laughs> "I think this was this was destiny, you know, for the two of us." But um, you know, there's so many people in this world that um, you know, people that fall in love or whatever at first sight, and um, you know, they they have to get to know each other, and, and you know, maybe they don't have things in common. But when when my wife and I moved in together. I think it was about a week and she made a reference to Sam <laughs> and I was like, man, this is my girl. <laughs> this, this right here is a keeper. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So, you know, she has a lot of, uh, good memories with her 128 and her dad's 128. Her dad passed away, um, when we were, uh, uh, sophomores in college. But, uh, uh, we still have his 128. It's out in the garage. It's not one that we use, and it's we just kind of hung on to it, you know, for sentimental value. But um, so we still have that 128 still out there. Uh, also, my friend Josh, um, little Yoshi, Josh had a 128, and I don't remember. Uh, Josh and I weren't that close in high school, really. We um, kind of got to become friends after high school, but um, uh, all of us. Me and Josh and, and several of our friends were all into um, car stereos at the time. And we all had these car stereos that were all terrible. <laughs> I think Josh may have had the best one of all of us at the time. Uh, but, you know, um, so we, we all had these giant uh, plywood boxes in our hatchbacks or back seats or whatever with um, speakers that, you know, had been recently stolen from somebody else's back seats or hatchbacks and... and um, uh, bought, you know, either in the school parking lot or, uh, you know, someone's backyard or a flea market with, um, pyramid amps and, you know, generic and crappy wiring. But anyway, um, 
Josh had this tape uh, called um, Bass Boy. It was from a guy named Bass Boy. I want your bass. And um, so we were messing around with his Commodore 64 one time. Uh, no, 128. And um, he was showing me that you could actually do, um, uh, you know, peaks and pokes and, and things in basic and come up with some. It was pretty easy to make music uh, just in basic on the 128. So uh, we had, like, made these bass lines or whatever and i don't don't think we ever actually outputted it out to tape but that was that was going to be our idea is we were going to make these bass lines um and you know record it out to a cassette tape and then play it in our stereos but um uh but <laughs> that's really what i remember about being over at josh's by the time um i really started hanging out with josh uh we had moved into the ibm world and and uh, josh is the guy that really helped me um I mean, basically, what I learned about computers and DOS and software and everything really came from my dad. Um, but and Josh was the guy that uh, helped me piece together my first PC, uh, my first IBM. Uh, he worked at a computer store and got me the parts, and and um, we built it at his house. So, um, so yeah. But, you know, it's funny how all these people that work in computers now and, and have all these history, we all go back to um, Commodore. I, I know um, I was listening to the uh, to a podcast um, earlier today while I was in the car. Um, I think it was, with, uh, it was Kevin uh, Savitz, I think is his name. Um, I know it. He's on my Facebook, Kevin. Um, but he was talking about, uh, he was being inter- uh, interviewed on uh, Earl's podcast, Retro Bits. And he was saying, you know, because he had an Atari computer, he met all these other Atari users and that he has those friends. And if he'd had a different kind of computer growing up, would he have had different friends? And that's a uh, pretty deep thought, really, because um, like my friend Josh, like a lot of us, you know, we met through different ways. But uh, my friend, well, Jeff and I had um, met anyway, but we we both had Commodore computers, and Andy had a Commodore computer. Uh, but th- those are people that I would have probably, or I did meet before I knew they had Commodore computers. But um, my friend um, Justin, whose last name is Mason, whose my son is named after, uh, I met through a BBS. Um, lots of the people that I talk to uh, on a regular basis are people that I met through BBSs, you know, so if they didn't have Commodore computers or something, yeah, I, I probably would have a different friend base or whatever. So that's a weird, weird, uh, concept, a weird thing to think about. Uh, and you think about lots of things when you're driving 12 hours. So there you go. Um, I didn't, I don't think I knew most people. I didn't know very many people that had, uh, 128s because the 128 was geared, I mean, its extra processing power was geared more towards business professionals. And um, the people I hung out with uh, as a early teenager were not business professionals. So to justify the extra money of a 128, you had to have a reason to need those uh, those things, you know. And um, uh, most of my friends were into playing games and BBSs and doing stuff like that. And so you didn't really need uh, that, that extra processing power that extra memory now if you ran a bbs i know a lot of people that had 128s because they ran bbs's in fact a lot of them had um those uh 
RAM extenders like I talked about on a previous episode. So um, plus a 128 and 128 mode, uh, you could run the 1571 and with a double-sided double density, you were effectively doubling your disk space. Um, so that, that um, was an advantage if you were a BBS. Um, so if the 128 was technically superior to the 64 and it was completely backwards compatible, then why uh, didn't the 128 replace the 64? And there's a few reasons for that. And the first is that software historically has been written uh, for the lowest common denominator. Uh, If you think about, um, for example, what we have today, like on modern consoles, if you think about um, the PlayStation 3, which has um, the Move uh, add-on, but not everybody has the Move, so most games don't support the Move, and, and the ones that do support the Move will work with or without it. Uh, I mean, there are a few dedicated move games, but it's hard to justify putting, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars into a new game with a very small uh, portion uh, of the gaming uh, client base or whatever. So, um, you know, with the... uh, And we saw that with the Commodore 16 and the Commodore Plus 4. The Commodore... Plus four actually had a lot more RAM, but since they were compatible, the game companies wrote games for the Commodore 16, which only had 12K of RAM. So even though the Plus four was capable of a lot more, it got a bunch of crappy uh, games, you know. So because the 128 was completely backwards compatible with the 64, people continued to put out games for the 64. And why wouldn't you? You know, uh, because 128 users could run them. So, uh, like I said, other than text adventures and things that would really take care of or take advantage of the 128's 80-column mode, uh, there wasn't much reason to write games for the 128 in 128 mode. So that was the first problem. Uh, And then you get into that um, chicken-before-the-egg argument if there's no software for the 128, why would you buy a 128? And if nobody's buying a 128, why would you make software that would be limited to people that only own 128s? Um, the uh, another reason that um, I think the 128 had a limited lifespan is because it came out in January 1985. Um, so by the summer of 85, you had the Amiga 1000 and you had the Atari ST. So we start to see the emergence of 16-bit computing. Um, so the people that wanted something cheap could stay with the 64 or the Apple II series. Um, we also saw the um, 2GS come along. Uh, so the people that wanted to stay cheap could stay in the Apple II uh, you know, series of computers or the Commodore 64 and the people that were looking for advanced graphics, advanced sound, uh, advanced computing power were moving towards the 16-bit machines. So it didn't leave a very big market for the 128. So it kind of just fell into this little hole. I do like the 128. I like its styling. Um, I like uh, its design. I like a lot of things about it, but it's just hard to at the time, to justify that purchase. So, 
Anyway, I know this has kind of been a, a weird episode. It's been more me uh, rambling, and it's um, almost midnight now, so I think I'm going to wrap up this episode and turn off the mic. Uh, by next Sunday, I should be back at home. I should be tired <laughs> after this week, but uh, hopefully uh, Saturday night I'll get enough rest where we could go back to doing the uh, old school way, the original style of the podcast. So, uh, Thanks again to everybody. Thank you guys for sticking with me. Thanks to um, all the guys, all the other, um, really... Over the, you know, since I started doing this uh, on a monthly basis, um, I feel this uh, camaraderie with all the other podcasts um, that I'm listening to right now. Um, you know, the uh, uh, the No Quarter guys, um, Ferg and his 2600 podcast. Um, Earl Green has a new podcast, and darn it, I don't have the URL. Well, it's with it's at the Logbook, um, but he's doing these little bite-sized podcasts that are like five minutes. Uh, long, they're great if you want to just listen to something on the way into work, or like right when you get to work, they're they're just um, full of little science fiction facts, and um, they're really awesome to listen to. Um, Doug McCoy, um, I, I knew Doug from the Retroist, and uh, then I I just listened to the Retroist the other day, and it said you know Doug has his own podcast called the Found Films. Uh, podcast and um found footage film sorry and um i went and looked and it's he's got like a hundred and something episodes or whatever and i was like i didn't know about that you know um but it's just crazy that it's like everybody it's not um competitive at all uh i mean the only competition would be is trying to, to make the best product you can um and in that sense this one this episode has surely failed um but it's like everybody is plugging each other, everybody's supporting each other. So I think that's really cool. I really appreciate everybody who, who um, plugs my podcast, and, and I hope we can all help each other, um, uh, you know, grow our listener bases and, and just uh, share, you know, all of our, our memories and our stories and all the cool stuff we're coming up with. And so, uh, but anyway, thanks to all you guys uh, who are helping me spread the word, and thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast, who uh, friends me on Facebook, sends me messages, shares um, uh, pictures. Uh, uh, Eric, who just um, shared me, uh, sent me a bunch of pictures of his retro uh, room at his house with all these Commodore computers and stuff. So cool, you know? And that's the coolest thing about this podcast is you just, you know, I'm just this guy with a microphone and a, a computer and I just talk about crap, you know? And then um, the, that word gets out there and you meet all these new people and you meet cool people with cool stuff you know i just love that part of it so anyway um that's all i got so thank you guys uh for hanging in there with me and um we'll be back next week with episode 129 i don't know what the topic is yet but um, i got a couple cool ideas um in the background so thanks for listening again and we'll see you next week Software mouth.
for your Commodore 64 computer. I could always do lots of amazing things. I could talk very quickly when I wanted. And I could talk very slowly, too. I could speak in a very high voice. And I could speak a low. But now I can do something even more amazing. I can change my voice completely. I can be a little elf who talks like this. Or I can become a strange alien. You can use this voice in a space game. Or how about this stuffy little character? A silly voice for a computer. I can talk like a little old lady. Not many computers can do this, sweetie. And as a matter of fact, I can become the latest movie hero and say, E.T. Fulton. E.T. Fulton. There's no telling what Sam will do next. Oh, Sam, can you see? I'm a Oh, oh, oh.